Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week we have a super fun twofer for you. We're talking to Chan Kinchla of Blues Traveler, and then we're talking to Dolph Ramser, who is the manager for the Avet Brothers. I'll tell you more about Dolph when we get there, but let's start with Chan. So everybody knows the omnipresence of Blues Travelers and songs like Hook and Run Around back in the 90s. Um, they were they established their bona fides then, and they have never quite gone away. They're still a huge draw, especially live. Well, the last few years have shown a lot of sort of experimentation with them and playing with, I think, the image of what people think Blues Traveler is all about. The reason I say that is because they have a new album out called Blues, sorry, called Traveler's Soul. And it's a covers album of like R&B standards. There's Stevie Wonder, there's Groove is in the Heart by D-Light in here. There's some Dr. John. There's a little bit of everything and it's it's not always obvious things that you would think. TLC's Waterfalls, they do really excellent covers of all of this stuff and it's really good. In fact, I'm going to have I'm hoping to receive some copies of the album to give away to Patreon supporters. So look out for that in the future. Before that, their last album was also a covers album called Traveler's Blues. Obviously blues covers. A few years ago, they did a country album. They also did a pure pop album called Blow Up the Moon in 2015. So they've just really been kind of trying different things and expanding what the image or what the what you think of when you think of blues traveling. So Chan, who's the guitarist, one of the original, you know, founding members of the band, along with John Popper, uh, is here to talk about all of that with us, including, you know, the good old days in the 90s, what they do now. I find them really interesting because they sell out Red Rocks here in Denver every 4th of July. And I always think every year, whether they have a new album or big or not, they do it. And I was like, how do you manage to do that? And it's because they have great fans. I didn't get Chan for very long, but you will see, he is just about the most, the nicest, most vibrant personality you've ever heard. Okay? So anyway, there's a lot to, dis- to discuss here, and I think you're going to like this new album. He joined me from his home in L.A. Good. Good to see you. Thanks for doing this with Dude, me. My pleasure. Sure. I brought my plaque, I brought my plaque flex. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say that. Yeah. Oh, hi, I'm Chan. I'm from a multi-platinum winning uh, well, band. I had hits in the 90s, so they were handing these things out like candy back then. Everyone was selling records. <laughs> That's hilarious. If I had your kind of pedigree, I would do that, too. You can see I have just well, a blank white you know, wall behind me. There's not much to, you know, I don't have any of those things. Well, but. the funny thing now is artists now, they get... Like streaming plaques, which are just yes. weird. It's yeah. not the same. It's not no. fucking the same. No, not at all. Not at all. In fact, I have some questions about that. Okay, first and foremost, I have to tell you, I live in Denver. You guys play Red Rocks every 4th of July. Even, <laughs> you were just joking about having hits in the 90s. I'm guessing other bands that might be bigger than you now would covet that date and that location, and yet you guys get it every year. How did you work this out? Why? I well, just want to know. Um, first and foremost, we have fantastic fans that show yes, up do. at the venue. Um, yes, so that's a huge part of it. You know, we when we first played, we first played there opening up for the Almond Brothers on Fourth of July, 
mm-hmm. I think in 1990 or yeah, 1990. Think so. And so it's the one and only time I've actually gone to the top and oh, seen the fireworks yeah. when a band's playing. So I actually have that experience. Well, the following year, um, so and then we played Red Rocks in October that same year, or uh, which was you know it was cold. We, that was the only spot we could get. We were just kind of coming up. The following year, the Allman Brothers didn't want it, so we thought it was so cool. They were busy. They they were uh-huh. touring, whatever the case may be. Um, and so we grabbed it. And we were just kind of getting big, and we were definitely Colorado has always been an amazing. It's our first Absolutely. market off the East Coast that really embraced this. I remember we were traveling cross country, you know, we started out in New York and we had, you know, some, we were pretty big along the colleges, along the East coast. That's kind of where we started fish widespread. We were all kind of in that little turf area there. Uh Anyway, we started touring across country and a lot of these places, no one had ever heard of us because back then it's word of mouth and tape trading. Really. We didn't have any radio play, but you know, colleges, you were, were pretty, were on to us. And those kids travel and talk. And so we we're travel out to Colorado and we're like, is anyone going to be here? And we go to the, play the Boulder theater, which, you know, oh, sure. is a college town. Yep. And there show up and it's sold out packed. Everyone nice. knew we were coming. And uh-huh. uh, we, we knew right away that Colorado was a place for us. We, um, so we would go back there a lot. So we, that was kind of where we, we, the first place we kind of grew outside of our little, uh-huh early area so we grabbed that first fourth fourth of july that was available thanks the allman brothers and we haven't looked back so um that's how that's started. crazy we did horde there the next year on the third yep. and fourth and for you know for whatever reason strasburg likes us and mm. we keep selling we sold out this year so i'm, sure. I'm feeling we'll be allowed back next year do you sign like a 10-year contract? I mean, does everyone else, do you ever get calls from bands like Widespread or, I don't know, uh, Michael Franti's here all the time. Hey, do you right. guys, would you mind giving us your 4th of July show? I, just you once? know, at this point, 30 years later, uh-huh. I think we've kind of staked our claim to the 4th. It's crazy. It's crazy. Um, so I just have cool. always I mean, wondered how you do that. We actually, it was our first show back after COVID because that was right in July, was right uh-huh. around you know, a year later was right around when shows were opening back up. So that was our first show back after basically a year off. Yeah. Hadn't really played any, any real shows. Right. Um, And that was fantastic way to start it back up. I believe it. Uh, The first time I saw you guys in concert was in San Francisco. In fact, I was going to ask you if you remembered what this was, it was outdoors. It was, I think on one of the piers, at the base of like the Bay Bridge. And I think it was you and the old 97s and Mother Hips. And it was around 2001. And uh, there were fireworks. And I, I wondered if you knew what that was. And I looked it up and I think it was the K-Fog Kaboom or something like that. That, this sounds, even that sounds very familiar. I mean, so many great gigs in San Francisco. Uh, sure. you know, that's kind of our one of our, our other... Uh, homes when we got off the east coast and started yes. traveling across country because bill graham was our manager for a while and well, i don't uh, think i knew so, that what's that i don't think yes. i knew he managed you yes oh, he did uh, it was a, okay. one of the great honors of our life and really totally amazing connection with uh you know the original rock and roll uh world that he helped yeah. create you know um yeah his son went to school at columbia university david graham 
and in New York City. Uh-huh. And we were like, in 89, we were like the big band in New York City. And we ended up playing up at his frat in at Columbia for a frat gig. And he saw us and then he got his dad to come out and, you know, the two of them managed us. And, uh-huh. uh, you know, Bill is really responsible for kind of getting us signed. I mean, we had a lot of labels interested, but when you walk in the door with Bill Graham, uh, uh-huh. a lot, a lot of things get done. Yeah, doors he open. He put us on those Allman Brothers tours. He put yeah. us on opening up for Santana. Huge. Um, just great. I mean, amazing opportunities to kind of really learn from the masters at that time. So for us kids, that was amazing. So we would go when we go out there. We kind of the base out of San Francisco. So I got it. So many fond memories from early days. Those were the days. Yes, for sure. I get it. Okay, let's talk about the new album, uh, Traveler's Soul. I loved I loved the concept here of you guys putting your spin on old, in most cases, like R&B or funk songs. Um, sure. I have to, the one that blows my mind is Groove is in the Heart. The chills that you spill up my back keep me filled with satisfaction when we're done. Satisfaction of what's to come. Everybody loves that song, but I would never have thought of Blues Traveler doing Grooves in the Heart. Well, if you think about it, it was actually John's idea. If you think about it, it's the the chorus is really pretty so soul R and B, like most of those most of those trip hop kind of uh, electronic stuff, especially from that area. They would put a kind of R and B chorus over you know all the beats and all the fun, right? And uh, so that that kind of fit. And we, you know, we wanted to try and get outside the box a little bit. But an interesting thing is Delight is out of New York City, the Lower East Side, the same time Blues Traveler was coming up and playing all over the Lower East Side. So we used to okay. see them around all the different clubs. They were kind of more part of that club kid, you know, limelight uh-huh. crew. But, you know, we play, we play the same places sometimes. Uh-huh. Um, so we would bump bump into each other. We weren't like friends, but we would yeah. we were kind of coming up together. So uh-huh. we do have an attachment to delight in that song because they okay. got big, and we were like, "Oh my god, that's the, the those dudes." <laughs> that I mean, their original is it's pretty revolutionary in terms of sampling and sound collage, and you, you guys make it your own. And that's one of the things that I really like about the new album is that there's that blow up the moon album you guys did a few years ago yeah. which is it's i see it as like a genre experiment let's see if blues traveler can it's go true. pop you know what i mean like let's see just let's throw a complete curveball to our fans and i feel like traveler's soul merges what you guys do really well with the sense of fun that came from an album like 
blow For up sure. I mean, we're always trying to do challenge ourselves and you know sometimes just going completely out of the box yeah part of the the uh you know how how we've lasted this long continuously doing different stuff getting out of the box kind of reinvigorates us to get back in the box you know sometimes uh, so we're always trying to do that sometimes it's a disaster sometimes it's fantastic (laughs) but you know the our saving grace is from the very beginning when we were in our Brendan's basement in Princeton, New Jersey in 86, 87, we could never sound like anyone else. We, Mm -hmm. you know, we were always doing originals anyway, but even if we did a cover, we just Mm -hmm. couldn't sound like anyone else. So we were pretty comfortable. We could take these great songs. I mean, they're all hit songs in their own way, in their own world. And we, they wouldn't sound like we were just trying to do a cover of them. If anything, we were trying to, you know, put our stamp on it, but try and be true to these great arrangements and all the cool ideas they had and save a few of those original things. Um, And I think, you know, it's, it's really fun to just work on arrangements and parts of already crafted great songs. Yeah. And we also learn a ton when we take, you know, when we kind of deconstruct these songs about songwriting and different ideas for overdubs and how they did it and all these cool different artists, how they did it. Um, Because, you know, we really break them apart, look at all the elements and we're building before we build them back up. So for us, same as with uh, Traveler's Blues, the blues one we did before, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we it's such a it's like a it's like an advanced course in in songwriting and craft for us. So I think it'll uh, it'll definitely have an effect on the next studio album, like original album we do. Right. And it's just fun. It's just fun. It, you can totally hear how much fun you guys are having. Um, in fact, I think two of my favorite songs on Traveler's Soul are the lesser known ones, like Qualified. I love about Qualified. I'm blanking on the name of your piano player, but the piano in this ben one. Wilson, yeah. That's it. I knew it was Sheehan, but anyway, uh, the piano is incredible. And I thought, if you're going to cover a Dr. John song, you better nail the piano part. For which sure. Is the highlight of Qualified. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, and, and the, I mean, most piano keyboard players are huge Dr. John fans. So yes. why would Ben they? was the yeah. whole time was just gassed to do that song. Yes. And you could tell. That's something he worked on coming in, yes. making sure he he gave that an authentic feel. And yes, he did a great job. Yeah, that song is one of those ones where some of them we really had to struggle to kind of find our 
place and and make it groove. Uh-huh. And that one, we just started going and it was boom, it was right there. So yeah. we, uh, that one came real easy. I love Fool For You too. That's I think the first single yeah. off of it or the latest single anyway. Never like nobody That's been mean to me I got a heart full of stone And I hate the misery That you came along Into my life Destroying me more Mounting up the toil and strife But I'm a fool for the impressions i'm wondering when you attack when you whenever i talk to somebody i mean i've done 600 of these things and whenever i talk to somebody about a cover i'm always curious if they do it because it's a song they like and they want to honor it or if they think they can bring something kind of new to the table, or they think they can improve it somehow. When you go in and you start thinking, I mean, I'm imagining there are several covers that didn't that got excised at the end. Oh, you would have loved sure. to have done well, 50 the, the more. process is very long and convoluted, like most things in a big yeah. democratic mess like Blues Traveler. <laughs> um, and you know, it starts months ahead of time where everyone, and this is including our producer, Matt Rollins. Uh, the record company that we were working with, Round Hill Records, um, managers, everyone's throwing in, you know, through a song here, a song there. And we kind of collate a, a master list, which yes. I think got up to be about a hundred. I believe it. <laughs> and then you start seeing, and then you start seeing songs like a couple people, like there's songs that people don't want to do or, mm-hmm. um, and then, but mainly it's then it's like, what songs do, do most of us agree would be a great cover? And it's right. usually just because we love the song, you yeah. know? Yeah. And there was probably something to be like, something to be said that we love the song and we think that's kind of up our wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. But uh, mostly, and so that weeds it down to like 30. And then in the end, Matt, our producer, has to kind of be the one to kind of curate it so it looks like it's a cohesive thing. Yes. It's not all the same but compliments each other, you know, all those things. So mm-hmm. we probably got it down to 20 and Matt got it down to the final, final list. And we kind of just roll with his ideas at that point. That but makes mostly sense. just songs we love, you know, yeah. there's not too much thought past that. So what's next? I mean, Traveler's Blues, Traveler's Soul, is there going to be like Traveler's New Wave or Traveler's yeah, well, Metal? We, or we, we joked about that. I guess there's, there's always reggae. Uh-huh. That's a good one. Uh, but I do like Traveler's New Wave because we are yeah. all 80s kids. Same. And we yeah. came up with all that new wave punk rock. I mean, honestly, that was my first love of music was punk rock, new wave, you know, yeah. Yeah. the clash, the, the police and all that. Yes. Uh, when I was just starting out as a kid, because I could I could play a lot of those those songs because the guitar wasn't super complicated. In any case, I think that would be a we 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 do a few of those songs. We do like Mirror in the Bathroom. Um, yes, so, I just I was just imagining you guys doing Walking on the Moon. 
I right. bet you'd do a great walking on the moon. We could. Uh, let's you and I work together one. on this one, Chad. Right? I think we could do this. <laughs> but and, and at the same time, we've been uh, after two records of this, and this is kind of more old school traditional music that was a big influence on us when we were coming up. Um, where I think we're kind of excited to do another original album at this. I point. believe it. Yeah, <laughs> I don't blame probably it. what's next, but you never know. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, hurry up and hang around. I think that was your last one yeah. of original material. And well, that so in that, uh, well, sorry to interrupt, but uh, well, no, go ahead. So we had done that right before the pandemic or a year or so before the pandemic. So we weren't emotionally or materially prepared to do another originals record. I mean, those things take, need their own life force to kind yes. of come, yes. come, come to be, especially at our, at our uh, advanced age. Yes. Um, when we're not just living and breathing blues traveler, like we did in 1989 and 1990. Um, so that blues record kind of was just a, some idea, something fun to do during the pandemic. Thank God we had that to do. And it came out so well and got nominated for Grammy and did really well. We're like, we should, you know, let's let's go, let's go in and do it again. But so hurry up and hang around was was uh I I think it's you know the time's coming. I, I honestly sure. it'd be really neat to see where we're at after doing all this, you know, studying all this I agree other material. It could be pretty cool. I thought that too. I'm really curious what you guys would do next. Let's talk about Blow Up the Moon, though. It's such a, I mean, it's a super fun record, but it's an oddity in your canon. What, yeah. Are you, in, do you or John just come to the band and say, guys, let's make a straightforward pop record? Let's see. I mean, well, who thinks that way? You guys, um, not, and that was, band. you know, that was, that honestly, I think that was our managers at the time idea to kind of work with all these more contemporary artists and what we did is we would drive around the country where we were touring and whatever we mm -hmm. we went around the country and met with all these other really cool bands and just song wrote and in the moment with them and then recorded it so uh -huh. it uh it was it was just a blast but it was also like we'd be like hey nice to meet you let's write some songs <laughs> um and, I mean, J.C. Chasse from uh, oh, he was awesome, on there. Though. He, was oh, he is. He seems like a great guy. Spinning blind under the sky. Stars are burning like your eyes. Don't care if I make it out alive. So straps and dynamite to me. Shoot me through the galaxy. We'll be watching fireworks tonight. And 311, we've since become, I mean, we've became good friends with them. We still that makes sense. do things together. And we played sure. with 311 at Red Rock, the local Colorado legends. Yes. And, uh, you know, uh, Plain White Tees, that one came off really good. Yeah. I mean, all those songs were really cool. 
We yeah. loved it. I think our fans were perplexed, but uh, <laughs> God bless them. They weren't too mean to us. No, that shouldn't be. It's That album's a lot of fun. I just thought Dirty it was such heads, an odd they, they were really cool. Yes. We had some great songs with them. Yeah. yeah. Those were fun stuff. And like I said, it was just a different, uh, once again, just get outside the box for a little bit. Yes. It's good for us. You know, if people ask our key to longevity, it's to, mm-hmm. you know, take some risks and get outside the box once in a while. I totally see get, that get closed in into like a little world. So let me ask you this. I mean, we were joking earlier about the array of gold platinum albums behind you on the wall. I have a theory. It's a common question that I pose on here. I wonder sometimes if financial success is what frees people up like you to make these really drastic, risky decisions. If you're like, you know, my bills are paid because I've sold 20 million albums and hook and run around are going to get used forever. And I'm going to get royalties from that. I can afford to do a pop album or a country album or covers albums because I don't have to worry about it. Does that well, ever factor I mean, in? We're not that wealthy. I mean, okay. I mean, I'm very grateful for sure for all it's afforded me, but I mean, we still work for a living. We can't, yes, good point. we couldn't just take off for a year. So, yeah. I mean, that's another reason to stick around for as long as we have it. The money's good. And, you know, we love playing live. And that's how we make a, a large chunk of our cash is playing yes, live. Sure. Um, so, you know, the, the financial considerations, I think, you know, in this day and age, what, you know, the especially recorded music and, and doing the albums, really, you're just trying to build a brand. Yeah. So it can translate into, because no one, I mean, even, even if you're, you're, uh, a lot of people are streaming your records. You're not making any money off that anymore. Good point. Yeah. Um, the subscription thing is just, a, it's just a disaster, but at least it's something. Cause in the aughts we were, we were getting zero dollars yeah. for, for recorded music. Good this point. is the 89. These are back in the nineties. We actually got paid for <laughs> records, even though it was a pittance, but yes. you know, yeah. uh, so, but there's not enough money. The idea, the things we try to do are kind of to keep the brand fresh, keep mm-hmm. the band name fresh, keep ourselves in a conversation, make sure we're we're doing new stuff. And I mean, that's the the finances of doing those records. Sometimes those are good financial decisions to get outside the box because mm-hmm. it kind of opens you up to new new people, new people that might that. Be in the band, and keeps you kind of fresh and young, you know. Mm-hmm. So, or or touches a. Uh, a section of the population doesn't normally listen to you. Um, yeah. So, but I, honestly, we're usually just following our muse. Uh, the financial considerations, we're, we're not great with money. So yeah. Obviously, <laughs> following those impulses. Right. Uh, you know, like most bands, it's, uh-huh. it, it's when you, when you all of a sudden give a bunch of 25 year olds the keys to the, <laughs> to the Maserati, they're, it's, it's a disaster. <laughs> So yes. we've had yes. our disasters where I'm pretty, we're in pretty good shape now. Um, and it is nice, obviously to have some, some fallback cash, sure. but you know, it's nice to also be a working, breathing, living yeah. band in business. You know, we enjoy Well, And that. you're so good at th- doing that. I mean, jam, I don't know. I know you're lumped in with jam bands. I don't always consider you that way. Cause you write pop songs, pop songs, quote sure. unquote, better than most of these bands do. But that, genre lends itself to live touring constantly those there's millions of people out there that want to see you in that environment so yeah, it does make sense you're in the right place 
you know, we're lucky enough that we kind of we do get into that world. Um, but we also we can play all these different kinds of gigs as well. Um, yeah. Blues Travelers Blessing and Curses, we uh, we don't fit into any category, but That's when true. things are going well, we fit into every category. <laughs> <laughs> we're you know we're we're kind of a very kind of a singular entity. Yeah, uh, yeah, but. That makes We're just sense. being what we can be. I don't know any, yeah. other, any other way to do it. I agree. Okay. So let me ask you some questions then about the 90s because going, I don't know if a band like you, as, uh, like yours, aspires to the kind of success that you had. I had Steve Thompson on here years ago and we talked about sure. producing the album and everything. That was a real highlight in his career, which is huge because he has a lot of highlights. And um, I don't know if a band like yours aspires to big hits on the radio or if they like or is it more like the grateful dead and touch of gray where a big hit sort of comes as a surprise you know what i mean and then i'm wondering once you've had that do you continue to chase it is it difficult to try and recreate it or do you even try yeah well at the time i mean we're always we were always from the very beginning trying to get songs on the radio okay and, you know i don't think we ever imagined we'd have pop success but mm -hmm. You know, we had like, but anyway, was on a lot of college radio stations. That was that was great for us. I love we that song. And uh, every album we kind of worked, when we did four, at that time we were kind of like, it was like Fish, Us, and Widespread Panic were all these DIY kind of Grateful Dead model uh, live touring bands doing great business. When we did four, we knew there were some good songs on there and we were like, great, we'll get some radio play and sell a million mm -hmm. records. Mm -hmm. We had no idea it would turn into a, a hot 100, top mm -hmm. five, you know, top 10 song yeah. for for like a year to yeah. <laughs> book and run around and be like heavy rotation VH1 and MTV. The whole thing was just hilarious to us. Yeah. And it was a really fun ride. The the result though, at the end, it it confused it definitely confused like there's a lot of fans from the MTV thing coming yeah. to shows with a lot of hardcore fans that just want to hear more. You know, before then you played anything in your sets. Yes. You know, you Good didn't point. have any hits really. So there was definitely some adjustments that needed to be made, but uh, you know, we'll it's you're just following our, our path. You know, we were we enjoyed the the uh, the top forty acclaim a lot, which is funny. Yeah. Part of that with uh, "Don't Go Chasing Waterfalls" on on yeah. this new record, uh -huh. TLC. Uh -huh. 
that that summer when Runaround was really big, we did a bunch of radio shows and the VMAs, uh-huh. Video Music Awards, actually. But it's it, similar. I remember, sure. And uh, and we were we were always in the trailer next to TLC at all these different events, and it was just the funniest dichotomy. Uh-huh. And they were so cool, tiny, but yes. so cool. Like we actually got to be you know friendly in those situations. Uh-huh. So. We do have a TLC connection as well. That Go is figure. great. <laughs> that is great. So, okay, I wanted to know, I wanted to ask you about the Bastardos uh, album, because you did that with Jay Bennett, who has yeah, since passed so cool. away. He was sort yeah. of... Rest in I peace. Think, yes, I sort of saw him as the special ingredient of Wilco there for a while, and yet I think they saw him as someone expendable. Tell me what it was like working with Jay. Guess it bothers me because I can't convince her of a thing. I can't talk my way. I can't even say. And it builds into this quest until I come to rest at last. And admit I couldn't tell. I could only ask. And then I'm freshly daunted by the prospect of her eyes. And she lets me down with a gentle lie. But look to force an angel's smile They say it only hurts a while But I've been far all day For a thousand miles Never dance upon a plane Nothing could be made the same Not so much brokenness change And the fire above the moon Smiling down and shining through I hope that I could get this soon I wanna see Jay was great. He was so creative and interesting and so many studio chops. He was very experimental. Yes. And Bastardos kind of, we were we would just try anything. And we were, I think Bastardos is one of those records where we really wanted to get out of the box a little bit. And uh and it and it came off that way. But you know, he uh he was just a, a sweet, sweet guy and you know, had his shit together at that point. I think, you know, he struggled with some demons. But yeah, the nicest guy, so talented, and and he was, you know, he had his act together with us. Good. Um, so it was, you know, once again, it's just great to be able to touch some of those different areas of music that totally. Once again, blues traveler, we kind of we we're always in all these different places where maybe we shouldn't be. No, that's uh, well, okay. Speaking of shouldn't be in certain places, when the follow up to four morning comes out. And it starts to kind of underperform and you probably become aware that, all right, well, we're not going to see what we saw in the last album. How do you handle that? Is that difficult to swallow or do you think that's okay? This last thing was kind of a fluke anyway. It was kind of a fluke anyway. I mean, um, I don't think anything could really, I mean, at at our heart, we weren't really a pop band. Mm -hmm. And so those those pop hits, I, it was kind of a time and place too, where that kind it of was. music was really great. That was through. the time for that kind of thing. And yes. By three or four years later, things had switched to like new metal and dance music. Yeah. The, the you know the, the marketplace was just very different. Um, you know, I think I don't recall being particularly consternated about the fact that it wasn't four again. Okay. We had still had great live shows, um, and. 
And you know, the, the album to, to us had sold a million copies. So yeah, we were like, nothing wrong there, we right? We were like, fine, you know. And and you know, the the, the living in the pop world is kind of weird. It was the whole thing was a little wasn't quite our our bag. Totally. So we were almost happy we didn't have to do all the dumb press. <laughs> <laughs> I could see that. Okay, we last question. Four was like two years, which is not yes. blah blah blah. Just overwhelming your whole life forever. All of our lives. I mean, if anything, you guys almost were <laughs> overexposed at the time, you know? Yeah. And I mean, you couldn't turn on MTV or VH1. They were back yes. and forth, back and yes, forth. always. And and don't go chasing waterfalls and seals kiss on the roads on the grave, you know? Right. That's it. That's it. And then ran back to run around. Yes. Okay. So we're coming up on time. Last question then. What are your lasting memories of Kingpin? Filming oh, Kingpin. Kingpin. That was so fun. I mean, we were huge fans. The funny thing about Kingpin, you know, just also to say in my method acting, I actually grew that beard. <laughs> but there was nothing more ridiculous than us out in the cornfield playing. But anyway, uh, with all these stars dancing around, you know, the, 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 the scene on the way out is the best part. Yes. So yes. the funny thing was, is that movie didn't do that great in theaters. No. So we were like, oh, we came and went. Whatever. It was funny, yeah. fun experience. But it became a cult classic. Yes. So honestly, probably 50% of the people when I say Blues Traveler are like, oh, yeah, Kingpin. King. That was awesome. <laughs> so you never know, but it's, you know, it you was know. cool. And I love it because uh, there's Bobby. There is me and Bobby. You uh -huh. know, my old, our dearly departed bass player, yes. Bobby, and yes. a dear friend of mine. Yes. Robert Von Sheehan right there. Oh, you got his tattooed. Nice. Yeah. Oh, here's a great picture, too, by the way, of early Bleach Traveler. Oh, look at that. I saw that in the back. Oh, that's so Let's look cool. Look at the New York City skyline. The class. Oh, <laughs> the World tell, Trade Towers. Towers. We were just little kids. Look at that. Oh, there my gosh. <laughs> wow. I love that. That was probably 1989. Oh, anyway, so goodness. we can end on a shout out to... Yes, the, the, the amazing Bobby Sheehan, my good yes, friend. Absolutely. Thank you, Chad. You're a good dude. Thanks for chatting with Peace, me. This a lot. It's great talking to you. And you uh, thanks a lot. Great questions. Have a of great course. night. All right. There you have it. Chan Kinchla. Such a good dude. Wouldn't you love to just, I would, I would be in a band just so I could spend time on a tour bus shooting the breeze with Chan. Such a good guy. Now, the second half of this twofer is a fun one. We're talking to Dolph Ramser, who is the manager of the Avet Brothers. Here's the story. Dolph is actually a fan of the show. And he contacted me a while ago and said, you know, I would, I love what you're doing. I'd love to be a guest sometime. I manage the Avet Brothers. And I really? And then this summer, you may have heard I told a story about it earlier in a recap. Uh, we got to he let us go backstage to see the Avet Brothers perform at Red Rocks. We only went back for a little while, but he gave us a whole tour. We went on stage for a minute. It was one of the coolest experiences of my life. I thought it would be really interesting to learn from somebody how, what it takes to be a manager. How do you take a band from nothing to stardom, massive stardom, like the Avets? Documentaries are made multi-platinum albums i mean all the things but do you know that when you start out as a manager and how does it work financially and what is your life like how busy are you who else is involved anyway graciously dolph let me ask him all the most basic dumb questions that i've always been curious about but never known so anyway 
thank you, Dolph, for, for joining us and having this conversation with me because I think a lot of people are going to find this really interesting. He called me from his home in Davidson, North Carolina. Um, where are you in North Carolina? So I'm in Davidson, North Carolina. So I'm, I'm, um, I grew up about 10 miles from Davidson, North Carolina, and Stephan, uh, Stephen Curry played basketball at Davidson College. Yes, that's right. He did. I forgot yeah. about that. Yes. <laughs> you know, good. I like to say how, where the guest is calling in from. So I want to make sure I got yeah. that locked down. Yeah. And then, um, another person from Davidson, uh, he's not originally from Davidson, but he played basketball there at college, but a person that is from the town. Uh, is going into the North Carolina Music Hall of Fame. Her name is Hope Nichols. She's in a band. The band is going in called Fetching Bones. So I've heard Fetch of Fetching Bones. Yes. Yeah. So Fetching Bones was uh, Don Dixon produced. Uh, yes. A couple Fetching Bones records. They 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 started out independent on an independent label. I think out of Athens, Georgia. Then then they went uh, to Capitol, but. Uh, REM, Michael Stipe and the guys from REM championed um, Hope and Fetching Bones. And, mm -hmm. and uh, so they were sort of the post-punk kind of band from this area that, that <laughs> kind of made it. Um, great song on their first record called A Fable. Okay. Classic. I wonder if I know them and don't remember. If I, ha if I do, it's I haven't listened in years. Yes. Okay. Uh, Ooh, that's fun. Good. Um, well, you know how we do this. I mostly just want to ask you about what it's like being a manager. I think that's super fascinating, especially for a big act like yours. And uh, just understand like the daily grind and what you do and how you did it and those kinds of things. You cool with that? Yeah, yeah and I wouldn't mind touching on, you know, I'm, I'm in Roots music. Uh-huh. Uh, but, you know, the music I'm in, it all is on the edge of the table and there's a little, see, I've always felt that old time music, which predates bluegrass, uh, it's very punk rock. And there were a couple, a couple fellas within, um, that genre back in the twenties that, um, were equal to, um, any of the punk rock stars. Yes. I mean, maybe even a little wilder than, uh, some of those guys. And, but, um, I wouldn't mind touching on that because I think when people see some stuff that I work with, you know, one, one of the highlights of my life is having Lenny Kay out at an Avit show at the Bowery Ballroom in New York, <laughs> 2005. And they're playing a song called Talk on Indolence. And he turns to me and goes, this is punk rock. You know, so... <laughs> So knowing that kind of stuff, I mean, I just have always felt the stuff I'm always involved with with Roots music is like always the first punk rock. Well, it's on the edge of the table. It's very pushing the boundaries of acoustic music, you know. Yeah. I, I was, anyway, I wouldn't mind touching on that because a lot yeah. of people, they see a banjo or they see a fiddle and they think that it's uh, it's just all music. I mean, I I, I look at what Ian McCulloch is, was doing in Liverpool or what uh, Morrissey was doing in Manchester, you know, Earl Scruggs on the banjo and Doc Watson here in North Carolina, North Carolina, both of them are North Carolinians. They were uh -huh. doing, they're just doing the same thing. It's just yeah. different kinds of music, but it's what you have available. 
uh, to work with at the time. That's why I always, you've probably heard me say, I always feel like those early new wave bands are doing punk, but on synthesizers. I mean, the yeah. punks, what we think of as punks, they hashed around with a guitar they didn't know how to play. But right. the new wave guys just hashed around on a keyboard they didn't know how to play. The same oh, DIY yeah. spirit is injected in both bands. Except no one we refer that. to as punk and one we think of as wimpy new wave or whatever, you know? Yep. Soft cell, Depeche Mode. Yeah. Human, Human League, all of that stuff. I was a big fan of new wave, post-punk, all of that stuff. Massive yeah. fan. I new know. Wave. That's I mean, one it, of the things I know. That's one of the things we bonded over. So I'm curious. You talk about in the you talking about the fiddles and the folk music and stuff like that. Are you? Um, did you grow up? I'm imagining someone like you growing up in the South like that. That music always being around, and maybe you being the odd man out liking the British New Wave the way that you did. Yeah. Um, so one thing I never took the music from this state for granted. Like I knew I could tell right away when I was a little kid that music from this region, very, very special. You know, we're a poor state, North Carolina, sadly. So that forces people to look inward mm -hmm. to entertain themselves. Mm -hmm. And we're in the Bible belt. So mm -hmm. all of the artists uh, from this state, from, from, uh, you know, John Coltrane to, Earl Scruggs to Doc Watson, Nina Simone, Roberta Flack, Randy Travis, uh, uh, Ronnie Millsap, um, Max Roach. All those folks started playing in the church as kids. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so they, you kind of have a leg up if you're in this state but because you're, you get to perform essentially on stage in church. That's true. Uh, mm -hmm. And then we had the perfect melting pot of the Irish, Scottish, and then African, Amer African Americans, all that mixed together, that melting pot mixing together, mm -hmm. um, you know, was uh, very uh, essential in kind of how this state's music is. I mean, we're really, we're the leading, I, I consider North Carolina the center of the universe when it comes to music. I mean, really, really? I, it, from jazz, I mean, if, if North yeah. Carolina, had a jazz band. You got Thelonious Monk on piano. You got John John Coltrane on sax. Mm -hmm. uh, Max Roach on drums. Uh, you got a, a guy that played in the the um, the modern jazz quartet. Guys, he played on like three hundred and fifty. He's a bass player. Played on he he's in the North Carolina Music Hall of Fame. He might be in some jazz Hall of Fame. He should be. Mm -hmm. uh, then Nina Simone of Thelonious Monk. Wants to have a day off. She can play <laughs> piano. And if we need a, sing a jazz singer, Nina Simone can sing. Yes. But when you look at folk music, you've got Earl Scruggs. Oh, he's the Jimi Hendrix of the banjo. Yes, he is. You've got Doc Watson. Um, you know, um, Elizabeth Cotton. She's a Piedmont blues finger picker that was famous. And she's got something in common with Dave Wakelin. She plays the guitar with the treble string up and the bass string below. Oh. And, and I think much like Dave, when she picked up the guitar in the early 1900s, she didn't realize she didn't know how you're supposed to string a guitar. She must be a lefty. So she just started playing that way. <laughs> and so other way, yes, Dave played that way too. But then when you think of Mexican radio by, uh, <laughs> 
War Voodoo. War Voodoo. So in my hometown of Concord, there's a, a there was a band, uh, J.E. Maynard and his Crazy Mountaineers, and, and they were popular in the 1920s. So they recorded on the RCA Bluebird label mm. and were big stars. Uh, they went, uh, they would travel with the Carter family down to Mexico, uh, cross the border from, from Texas and play on these radio stations in Mexico that could, there was no regulate, no radio regulation in Mexico. So they could play on these stations that could reach to about 70% of the United States in thirties and forties. Um, but recently about 10 years ago, there was, a. Is there an actress by the name of Anna Kendricks? Yeah, Anna Kendrick. Mm-hmm. Kendrick, okay. Well, she had a song called The Cup Song. Yep, from uh, Pitch Perfect. Yep. Yeah, if anybody's got kids under the age of probably 20, they know <laughs> this song. I mean, it's a worldwide hit. Well, I mean, from Concord, North Carolina, the, the chorus of that song, You're Gonna Miss Me When I'm Gone, is taken note for note, line for line, from this J.E. Maynard song. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, I just <sighs> found that fascinating. But Oh, my it, gosh. But, yeah, North, so North Carolina, I, I never took music from around here for granted. I mean, it, it uh, but I also, I grew up on a dirt road out in the country, and we did not have cable. Mm. So radio was sort of my um, outlet. Yeah. And where I live in Davison, there's a college here called Davison College, and they late at night they would have student supported, student run radio station that would play alternative. At the time, it was called alternative, mm-hmm. in that, um, and they would play post punk, punk, and um, you know they were playing. They championed REM, and this yeah. is '83, uh, and I would go to sleep listening to that station. And, you know, I was a kid. I didn't have MTV. Mm-hmm. You know, when MTV started, it was very new wave-ish leaning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that, kind of, that kind of changed when Beat It kind of started getting played. But I would hear all these kids talk about these videos, you know, from modern English to Duran Duran to all this stuff, you know. Yeah. And I would I would listen to that stuff on the radio. So I think punk rock and, and new wave was sort of like, um, my teen angst, it was, uh, totally brand new to me because mm-hmm. I was so accustomed to, to seeing fiddles and banjos being played. Yeah. 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 So, and here's something so different. I mean, you talking about, you mentioning those bands going down to Mexico, it reminds me of, um, Joe Strummer had this fixation with radio and the radio waves and this is radio clash and stuff like that this fixation with the idea that life was happening somewhere else and it was being transmitted through the radio waves into your house into your living room and it felt like it was coming from another planet and i've always sort of related to that because i felt that way too and so you're i'm imagining it was before my time but being a little kid in somewhere st louis and there's a radio station that you can barely get from Mexico that's playing crazy things or the, you know, Radio Luxembourg for the people in the UK or whatever. That just must feel like, a you know, signs or signals coming in from the moon to people who are music lovers, you know? Where well, is this? How do I get it? Where's the rest? 
I'm sure in the 20s, 30s, 40s, that was, uh, you know, people would gather around the radio. And yeah, yeah. Like TV. I used to teach a class at Catawba College in the music department there on music business. And I had a blind student named Angel. And I would talk about radio. And Angel, I could tell he knew every single DJ I mentioned. He knew every radio station I mentioned. Yeah. He could tell you every nuance yeah. of radio because that was his outlet. That was his. Mm-hmm. Um, and he spent his life on listening to the radio. Yeah. Other yeah. kids hardly knew one station. Mm-hmm. It's just a changed world now when radio was was king. But I do notice like being in the business of, of music, having a, a record label and managing bands, radio is still so key to our bands is it i wondered about that i mean i haven't listened to the radio in years it i mean not intentionally sometimes it's on when i get in the car my wife and kids do it i never do yeah yeah we i used to manage a band called langhorn slim and the war eagle i remember them langhorn uh malachi de lorenza is the drummer his dad is victor from the violent films yeah and so they played a, a venue in Charlotte, North Carolina called the Visualite. And we saw on a Friday night, they sold 299 tickets. That was the most tickets they'd ever sold. Well, then we put out the next single and the local uh, um, alternative rock station. And I'm not, not left of the dial. This is 106.5, the end. Um, the program director at the time is, was a guy named Jack Daniels there, and, and he loved the song, and he started playing it on, this is like main commercial radio, mainstream commercial radio, 52, 54 times a week he was playing that song. Well, the next time Langhorn played Charlotte, he had 1,800 people paid. Oh. Yeah. And what odd about it is he's playing on stage and the f- people aren't really no- paying attention. And then when he plays the song, they light up like a Christmas tree. Yeah. Yeah. So wow. A- now, yeah. let me ask you this. Have you always, in grow it, were you always intending to be in the music world somewhere? You know, when I was in college, I started sending out resumes. Uh, never heard back from anybody. <laughs> I read religiously this magazine called Goldmine mm-hmm. Magazine. It was a record collector magazine. I mean, I would read, God, I mean, the, you know, if you were an alternative rock in, in the 80s, it took a lot of work. <laughs> I would have to drive about 45 minutes to buy a Melody Maker and an NME. Mm. And I would try to do that on a weekly basis. But I had, I mean, I had read all forms and I'm, I love all forms of music, but I had uh-huh. really studied about record labels and, um, and then I bought a, of all, uh, all things, I bought a record by a guy named Christopher Parkening. You maybe never heard of him. No. Classical guitar player. I mean, okay. one, of the, one of the world's greats. And I felt like I could do better production on the recording and production of the artwork and (laughs) of that that record sort of gave me the thought well i maybe could help somebody yeah not that i could really actually do the work Uh uh-huh 
so yeah, I started reaching out to people. Then I reached out to a guy named Martin Stevenson. Some of your listeners might be a fan of Martin. He was in a band called Martin Stevenson and the Dainties. Mm-hmm. He's from Newcastle, England. Um, and I reached out to him in the early 90s, letting him know I would love to come work for him. Because Martin's Martin to me is probably one of the best post-punk songwriters. And did you already know him or did you just send oh, him a letter out of the blue? Yeah, I was just a fan. He he came out with a record in 1986 called Boat to Bolivia that a guy named Gil Norton produced. Sure. I've been Gil trying to get Gil on here. Yeah. So Gil had had, had finished uh Ocean Rain by the Bunnymen, and I'm a massive Bunnymen fan. Mm-hmm. Um and so he did Gil produced Martin Stevenson's record. And on the record, it actually had a song called Tribute to the Late Reverend Gary Davis. And Reverend Gary Davis is a finger picker from from South Carolina, even though he spent a lot of his life, early life in North Carolina, playing on street corners before moving up to Harlem. And he he taught Bob Weir guitar, Janice Ian guitar. Um, But Martin was fascinated by um, music from North Carolina. Um, So anyway, I'd never heard back from Martin or, or anything. And then I ordered some records in the late 90s from Martin. He had gone from Capitol Records here in America. He was on London Records in Europe. Mm. Uh, then he was doing it himself. That's, that's usually how this all works. Yeah. You know, everybody's on a, they go through the major, they get used up, and then they're back on the indie kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, he noticed I was from North Carolina and sent me a note how much he loved the music of Doc Watson and a guy named Charlie Poole. So Charlie Poole, by the way, you know, in the nineteen late 1920s, Charlie Poole, he's from Spray, North Carolina. He was selling 100,000 records when a big hit at the time was ten to 20,000 records. Mm. Mm. And, but he was a total, total nut. I consider him really the first punk rocker. Mm. Mm. Total slammed a banjo over a cop's head where the cop ended up wearing the, the banjo neck like a necklace. Um <laughs> He goes on like an 18-day drinking binge and, and dies from, from alcohol poisoning. Uh, but he was a nut. Uh, nut. Um, uh-huh. Martin loved Martin loved uh, all, all of that stuff. And I struck up, I, I started a friendship with Martin Stevenson, and I decided in 2000 to bring him over to North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Um, Martin's second record was done by a guy named Paul Samuel Smith. He played bass in the Yardbirds. All right. And produced Cat Stevens' big records. Um, wow. And then a guy named Pete Anderson, who produced, was the guitar player for Dwight Yoakam, um, produced Martin's third album. Um, <laughs> so I learned a lot from Martin. Martin, I probably learned as much, and he was forthcoming about what not to do and how not to, not to do what I've done. But uh, I learned so much from Martin. He, it was like a master class in, in, um, now, were you technically his manager or just his oh, so friend or associate or what? A fan. And I gave him this idea. Well, come on over to North Carolina. I didn't know one person really in the music business. And I started wow. reaching out to all these <laughs> folks that I knew about. And I'm talking world-class musicians here. Etta Baker was about 80 years old at the time. She's one of the great Piedmont Blues finger pickers to ever live. <laughs> We went into her living room and her and Mart. I set up a mini disc recorder and and started recording them playing. Wow! Uh, and 
but all kind of fiddle players, um, all kind of guitar players, all through the state of North Carolina. Uh, we I took him on like a two week journey, and he played Jeez. shows. I booked, I booked shows. I didn't know anything about about booking shows, so it, it was. I learned. I learned a lot in that um, two weeks. Then I realized, I think I could do this. I think so I look, could help. Let me ask you this. Did anyone show up at these shows? And I don't mean that as a knock to Martin, but that is that would be one of my concerns. If I heard some band that I really liked and believed in, I would book shows for them and no one would show up. And yeah. then it would just be like, well, that was a bad idea. Yeah, well, Martin had fans. I mean, people enough fans to in North Carolina to sustain him for these two weeks. Yeah, wow. So that was pretty good to see that, uh, and I think it meant a lot to him that like his records on Capitol and and London Records. Like, I think he he probably thought maybe nobody would. I think he probably felt nobody would show. Sure, he was. It was good to see. Yeah. Wow. So that, no wonder then that, that experience fills your tank enough to believe that you can do more and keep yeah. going down that road. Correct. Wow, good for you. And so I can't remember, did you start your label first or did you start managing bands and was, were the Avets the first band or what? No, I, no. I started, uh, I started my label first. So I made that record with Martin, even though it took us about three years to put that together. Mm. Uh, and then in the meantime, when Martin came over, I met this guy named David Childers. David's right now in his early 70s. So when I met him, he was he was in his early 50s. And um, I, I put a record out first by David. Hmm. Um, and then I put a record out by an old time band, which, again, that predates bluegrass. And mm -hmm. very again, old time has got this connection with punk rock in a way where they don't give a damn about you don't care about taking solos mm -hmm. it's the melody we don't care if it's not a commercial thing mm -hmm. i made a, that record yeah then i then i started working with the avids so um, let me ask you one more question about all of this people buy these records i mean that sounds condescending but i don't mean for it to really how are you finding people is it the internet yeah, so we started, uh, I mean, we were selling these, really, David would play shows and sell these at shows. Martin, uh, I sent records over to him. He would come and sell records here when he when I got him back over to, to perform. That band I was telling, the old-time band, the Stanley County Boys, which had two ladies in it, um, <laughs> uh, put, uh, yeah, they, they started selling and uh, we started getting a little bit of a little bit of traction again a lot of this stuff again it's it's not this is not uh, commercial mm -hmm. this is as far in left field as you can probably get well it's a niche that's where my tastes lie i mean mm -hmm. you know, i bought the violent films first album in 1983 and my first actually act in the music business i got my sister that year to write a review in her high, I was in eighth grade. She was in 10th grade and she wrote a review in the high school newspaper. <laughs> and when I first saw the Avett brothers, that's the band. I felt really? like this band is very similar to the violent films. Oh my goodness. Yeah. 
Wow, no. making that connection. Okay, let yeah. me ask you one more. Uh, this might, if this is too personal, tell me. But no. from a total layman who knows nothing about this business, yeah. I almost imagine you have to have some personal or independent wealth might be too strong, but enough money to stake all of this from the beginning. Yeah, yeah. Well, you probably do, but I did not. I was okay. I wondered if you came from a rich family or you had uh, you were really successful at your day job and that managed to, you know, pay for this side hustle or whatever. No. 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 So the county I'm from, um, we had the largest textile mill in the world here. Mm. They'd make three hundred thousand towels a day at this plant. Um, there were thirteen plants here in the county and but uh yeah my grandfathers both both worked 50 years there my grandmother worked 45 years my dad worked a little bit in the mill and luckily i mean the greatest thing that ever happened to my sister and i he got a job at ups mm. i mean a, a blue collar job when i started this um i was moving i was moving furniture um uh, for a company and um i was working with the avits and they're very blue collar i mean they're from same county as me. So they're very blue collar. And I remember them, Scott heard me huffing and puffing one day because I was moving this desk uh, at my job. And um, I'll never forget. Um, he was, he was like, here was, I mean, I was the guy that was putting his records out, managing him and getting him shows. And um, he was like, well, we're going to keep working hard and we'll, you know, there was no, I kind of felt like there was no stopping us in a way. Yeah. That's so, amazing. I I think too, Dolph, about all of the other people, the other managers out there who go all in on some other artist that doesn't make it, who yeah. didn't hit the jackpot like you did. And I don't mean, I, I'm not saying that to imply you got lucky. You backed the right horse. The Avets turned out to be fantastic. And you happened to be there. And how many people in your situation believe that so-and-so is going to be fantastic and they don't turn out to be fantastic? You know what I mean? I've had it's it like winning the lottery. Yeah, I've had it happen to me where I've really thought some other folks would really, you know, yeah. take off for whatever reason. It, it never has happened. Yeah. Uh, now the Avits, to their credit, God, I mean, they probably have, they probably have played 300 shows for $50 or less. And they played in a lot of bars and a lot of punk rock clubs where I wouldn't want my mother to walk in, not only into the facility, but God, I would never want her to walk into the bathrooms of the facilities. <laughs> um, but they, you know, I'm thinking um, we played a festival. They played a festival called Floyd Fest for free. Um, and then a few years ago, they headlined that festival. Oh, nice. Um, they played another one for free called Shikori Hills uh, for free just to get in front of people. Mm -hmm. So they have, they earned it. And they also, you know, at the same time, the brothers were on the, the uptick um, American Idol was happening. Mm -hmm. And I would watch that show and then I would go on the road with the guys and they, the brothers were playing these damn places again that were just awful. A lot of them, 
but they were learning how to win a crowd over because the crowd was not there for them. Yeah. The crowd was there to drink and mingle. And the brothers, though, that was such an on-job training of we're on this stage, we're going to win these people over. Mm-hmm. And I remember watching American Idol, and I just felt so sorry for the people on that show. Really? Like they had it wrong. They felt like they could, and a couple of them have hit grand yeah. slams, yeah. Um, but most have not. Yeah. And I, I want to tell all of them go start playing in, you know, uh, in front of just a handful of people. Learn how to win those folks over because the brothers could make mistakes, yeah. you know, not be judged on it. Yeah. Um, but that was great uh, experience for the guys to go through that, to play these terrible venues <laughs> at the start to get their foot in the door. Were, they were not still the hardcore band Nemo when you came around. Uh, no. Okay. They were not. No, but. Okay. The brothers have always had this edge to them where it, yeah, much like the time I got Lenny K out to see him when Lenny leaned over and said, this is punk rock. They've always had that vibe about them to where it's teetering on the edge, Uh might fall off, but somehow they save it. Uh Um, And it can go from a whisper to a scream. And they also have learned how to write very heartfelt direct lyrics which in songs that sound so simple but those are the hardest songs to write yeah Yeah. direct simple heartfelt songs that use words yeah they're they're, i can't speak highly enough about uh the guys and and um their talent so uh they've earned they've earned it Mm -hmm. i just cheerleader in a lot of ways Do you, did you, when was the time when you noticed, I don't know if you were finally able to quit the moving job or when did you notice that, because one of the things that became clear to me in watching the documentary, May It Last, which I'm annoyed at myself. I remember when that came out and wanting to watch it. I'm a big Judd fan um, and wanting to see whatever he was into. And I forgot about it. I never watched it and I forgot about it. And then when you mentioned it this weekend, I was like, oh, that's right. I've been meaning to watch that for years. And one of the things that you come away with in that is that they have continued to just grow. It's, you know, you talk about there has not been a dip so much, probably because of the strength of their live shows, to be honest. Mm-hmm. So that if people don't want to buy the new album, they'll still go to the show because they know that Laundry Room is going to explode every night or whatever, you know? Yeah. And so I, uh, when did you realize that this was going to be big enough to sustain a living, a decent living? Yeah. There's one show in particular. We, they played the university of North Carolina students only show at a place called Memorial hall. And I think Memorial hall holds 12 to 1500 people. Mm. And I was the only, um, uh, mature person in the room. I remember everybody else was 18 to 21 and, we had a record out called emotionalism and every single person in that building were singing the words to every song. Goodness. And I knew then, well, when this, this isn't happening because we're, we're on TV and we're on radio all the time. Like 
this is word of mouth. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's been one of the great things about the Avits. Somebody sees the Avit brothers live and they go and tell somebody. Yes. Well, they go and tell 10 to 20, 30 people. You got to see this band. Yes. Um, yeah. That's when I knew. That's when I knew we couldn't be stopped. That was one of the times. Then we played a place in Greenwood, South Carolina. That was, that was, uh, that was early on. Uh-huh. And if we could make it through that show, nothing could stop us. <laughs> Why? Why? It just was, it was one of those, uh, you had to be there to see it, witness it. But oh boy. That didn't kill us. Nothing would. Okay. So we, but there were a couple of those moments where, you yeah. know, uh, we're going to, we're going to persevere. Yeah. But okay. That, that big show at Memorial hall, seeing everybody. That, was it. that yeah. was it. I remember coming home and telling my family. Um, and it's funny, like when emotionalism came out in 1970, the record came out in 2007, but in 77, my dad went on strike uh, with the Teamsters because he worked at UPS. Mm-hmm. And I remember his, him sitting us all down, and he was not going to cross the picket line, which he didn't. And he gave this speech that uh, I'm like eight years old. You know, he gives us this speech of we're going to have to eat all the the canned food that we had canned mm-hmm. during the summer, and Santa might only bring one <laughs> gift, and and that was my main. You know, I, of course. <laughs> um, but when emotionalism came out, I remember sitting my family down on the living room couch and getting up and telling them, "If we're going to make it in life, this is the record that will do it." Yeah. And so I told that to our distributor a company called Thirty Tigers, and a guy there at Thirty Tigers got up in front of everybody. At that time, this company called Thirty Tigers, they were sort of on the fringe of are they going to make it or not make it and he sort of gave the same little really speech and that really that record really uh they got on Colin O'Brien that was such a big deal when they got on late night TV mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and you know so that was gosh i mean it, what's odd is you know at that time we played near in a venue near Raleigh North Carolina and the guys sold 7000 tickets and this is before Rick Rubin came calling. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that was the thing that I was going to ask you about. What are what are the primary, explain to us, idiots, what the primary responsibilities of being a manager are. Is it reading label contracts? Is it sorting out live shows? What are the, what are the main day-to-day responsibilities? Yeah, so you're involved in all aspects of an artist's career from, uh, from, you know, helping them find producers, helping them work with their booking agent on, on where to book shows, you know, which markets do you go back into? We've played that area too much. We need to give it a rest. Yeah. We need to get this, you know, we need to try to get opening spots with such and such band. We need such and such band opening for us mm-hmm. uh, i mean everything from website social media uh contracts to i mean it's it's about everything you can think of really uh, yeah now the touring aspect of it i mean we're involved in that but 
uh, all of our bands have tour managers that help, you know, all the travel things that go on. Okay. Uh, but we still kind of keep an eye and work hand in hand with the tour manager and we work hand in hand with the booking agent. And then when we have a publicist on board to get the word out about albums and shows and everything, we work very closely with, with the publicist. Um, and then when radio campaign is going on, we, when radio promotion is, we, we work very hard to um, oversee that as well. Okay. So it's all so, so when you say Rick Rubin comes calling, he literally calls you or do you call him? No. So a lady at uh, Columbia Records, I think, got wind of the Avits and uh, sent emotionalism to Rick. Okay. Then Rick wanted to meet with the guys and met with the guys out in California, maybe Malibu. I think they went to his place in Malibu. And uh, then they, they, I think they wanted Rick to give me a call and, so Rick called me, and really the only thing Rick and I talked about was making great art, and and um, that was the main focus, uh, and it's always been the main focus, is just getting the guys to make the best art they can make, giving them all the tools they can to make the best art. And, and that's really, Rick's been a great teammate to us. I mean, I guess he's produced about five albums by the guys now. and Yeah. That's it's been an awesome experience to see that relationship bloom and and um, so yeah I mean Rick's a special special person for sure and you know oddly enough Rick Rick and I both growing up and he still is I'm still big professional wrestling fans really and I know that sounds very odd but well, there's uh, millions of you out there I just wouldn't have guessed when you think of Rick. In his labels, you know, um, I mean, his acts that he's worked with from LL Cool J to the Beastie Boys to Run DMC, you know, all of his, they're, they're kind of larger than life characters. Yeah, are. good point. And, uh, you know, Rick's, Rick's always told me that if you're a wrestling fan, you have a leg up in the music business if you get into the music business. Why? Well, I just think, you know, so, yeah, so I guess... You know, when, when wrestling is a, it's, uh, it's, it's such show business. It's such, um, a bizarre kind of thing that, I mean, that people are fast. I mean, it's just larger than life. I mean, it's, it's, um, yeah. And so I totally get in the way they promote shows, you know, as a kid, uh, in our area, I'm 20 miles north of Charlotte, North Carolina. So we were the main competition to Vince McMahon and WWF at the time. Now it's WWE. So we were Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling, which was Jim Crockett Promotions. Mm. We had Ric Flair and Dusty Rhodes and and uh, the Rock and Roll Express, Midnight Express. And <laughs> uh, we were the main competitors to Vince. Um and to see these guys, and I mean, listen, Vince McMahon's one of the greatest promoters to ever live. He sure is. Yeah. You know, so I was very fortunate to see how they promoted shows, you know, growing up in our area. Because you couldn't walk out your front door without knowing about it. Mm -hmm. Same thing with NASCAR. So the Charlotte Motor Speedway was in the county that the brothers and I uh, grew up in. 
you know, the vice president over there at the Charlotte Motor Speedway, his name is Humpy Wheeler, probably the greatest promoter to ever walk this planet. And to watch, you know, as little kids, the Charlotte Motor Speedway to us was like our Disneyland or Disney World. Mm -hmm. uh, it was in our county and they had two NASCAR races a year and Richard Petty and David Pearson and, and Daryl Waltrip and Dale Earnhardt, all these guys. And, um, but to see how they promoted the shows, I had two leg ups Yeah, uh, with being a NASCAR fan and being a, a wrestling fan to see how Fascinating. people promoted shows. So, yeah. And okay. I've, so I've always sort of felt like, um, like the Avis, Avits and all the bands I work with, the greatest shows on earth, you got to see them when they come to your area. Yeah. It's sort of how NASCAR and wrestling kind of make it. You know, you if That's you true. don't come to this show, you're missing out. You know, that is very true. Um, now we talked about Rick, so tell me more about Judd Apatow. Then, does he call you? How does the documentary happen? Yeah, so how that happened was Rick wanted Judd to hear the latest record the guys had. It was called The Carpenter to use to see if he wanted to use some songs in a film called. This is 40. Yep. Um, and from that relationship, I think that was the first time that Judd and Rick had met, I, I believe. Um, and then from there, Rick called Judd and said, hey, you know, I'm going to start a new record with the guys. Do you think you'd want to maybe send a, a crew down to capture some of it? Hmm. And then that led, I mean, I remember Judd, not knowing that he was really making a documentary. He just, he was a fan of the brothers, fan of Rick. He mm -hmm. sent a crew down to get some footage and it turned out really, really good. And from yeah. there, a seed was planted with Judd that, you know, he could do a documentary and it, it and it's called May at Last, a portrait of the Avett brothers. And it's beautiful. The thing, the big takeaway for me was the, the literal and spiritual family vibe. I mean, it's not just that the brothers, you know, the, of course they're brothers. So of course there's a family vibe, but everyone in the orbit of the Avett brothers band, you, Joe, whoever else is in there, their parents are so, first of all, they're just, everyone is a decent human being and you can, that radiates off the screen when I watch it, who wouldn't want to be a part of this, this right. collection of people. Whenever I see the polyphonic spree in concert, I always think I want to leave in my life and join the polyphonic spree. I want to do whatever there that circus looks like fun to me. And yeah. when I watched your documentary, I was thinking I might want to just leave and join the Avet brother circus because it looks so inviting and endearing and lovely. Yeah. It's amazing how many promoters around America and venues will send nice notes about what a great group of guys and yeah gals because we have scott and seth's sister plays in the band and then we have a, a fiddle violinist named tanya elizabeth that plays in the band as well yeah so yeah it's uh you know that movie's really a love story between two brothers yeah it really is yep. and you know that Judd, I think, connected us with a company called Oscilloscope, which was started by um, Adam Yock. Yes. So yes. Adam started started that company. And and for your listeners, it's a um, it's a distribute a film distribution company, 
and it, primarily they do a lot of music documentaries. Mm-hmm. They're great. And so I remember uh, the goal was to get that in theaters one night. Mm. So a lot of these documentaries, you're only, you're only in the theater for one night, and that's it. Yep. And so I remember asking the guys at a Skilloscope, well, you know, well, you know, what's the goals here? Like, what's the high watermark? Mm-hmm. And they were, oh, well, you know, look, don't worry about it. We're going to try to get this in 100, 125 theaters. I said, well, well, just tell me, like, what's the, well, we put out a documentary by LCD Sound System that set the one night record for a documentary, a music documentary for one night. And I've seen that one too. Yeah. And I said, okay, well, you know, what was the record? And they told me the numbers. And so I started thinking, well, you know, LCD sounds system, New York, Chicago, LA, they're going to sell more tickets than the brother. Mm-hmm. Columbus, Ohio, Athens, Georgia, mm-hmm. Athens, Ohio. I mean, I could, I could, um, I could go all to Birmingham, Alabama. I could start sure. name, you know, cause the Avits, I, what I had in my back pocket, I knew was that we never built, and most indie rock bands build their careers on major markets mm-hmm. where we've done minor and major markets and hell, maybe even put more focus on the minor markets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I knew if our fans got involved, they would start requesting this. So we ended up getting into close to 400 theaters and we uh, as far as i know i think we still set have the record very beat, good beat chris brown beat both pearl jams documentaries and that's uh, great that, that was um i yes. felt special about that absolutely I, I, you should um okay i have some questions for you that people have sent in and one of them and i give me for whoever sent this i don't remember who asked is there still going to be a broadway show Yes, and that is um, we we had that show in Berkeley, California. I guess that was now two years ago, and it's called Swept Away. Okay. And the writer of the book, I've learned a lot of terminology in this. So the writer of the mm-hmm. uh, sort of dialogue of this stuff is a guy named John Logan. So John did a couple I know of that names. name. James Bond films. He did the reboot of Moulin Rouge. Um, he's done a lot of big, big things. Michael Meyer is uh, the director. He did um, American Idiot and many others. Goodness, that's great. And so, yes, it's uh, November 25th to December 31st. It's in D.C. Um, at a place called Artist um, Arena Stage. Okay. So the Avits came out with a record and, that I put out in 2004 called Minionette. And Minionette was the name of a whaling ship that, that uh, went off, that uh, sank. And a couple of the, the captain and a couple of the members got into a dinghy, my favorite nautical word. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh, and, um, they uh, ended up doing what is considered the custom of the sea. And the custom of the sea is when you, there's no hope you're going to be found. So you draw straws to see who's going to be eaten. (laughs) 
And so when they went, wow. when the when they were rescued, they said we were going to tell the truth about how we did this. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so the story is about a, a whaling ship that goes down and four members get into a little small boat. And the Avitz music, they've written one new song for it and in the back catalog. It's so amazing, though, that John Logan, <coughs> he um, he's able to take their songs and make it sound like all of these songs were written just for this. It's no so, kidding. It's so uncanny. And it's got a lot of meat on the bone. Uh, uh -huh. Very dark and mysterious and very, um, yeah, I, I really now realize that this, other than the brothers performing the songs from the stage, mm -hmm. to me, this is the highest art form. Really? Uh, other than the brothers performing. I, I can't speak for other bands that have had their music used or, and yeah. all the go-go's and, Cindy Lauper and all of those. I haven't seen any of it. Ours is a totally different kind of thing. Yeah. But it's very, wow. very uh, high art, uh, fine art. I'm very proud of it. It's one That's of amazing. And this has been going on for like, a, it's been in the works for eight or nine years. Yeah. So, Goodness. Yeah. Um, okay. My buddy, Matt Sheffield, who you met, who loves you more than just about anybody on earth. Um, he sent over some questions, most of which I had the same things. Number one, um, what was it like as the manager when they switched to a major label? Like, what are the challenges? What are the new challenges involved with this? Yeah, you know, really, um, if anything, it just felt like there were more people joining in and helping and mm -hmm. putting fuel on the fire. Yeah, okay. Yeah, we... When when we signed with Rick, we went to Columbia Records because that's where Rick was in the Sony network mm -hmm. and have had nothing but great things there. And then Rick left to go to Universal and we went over to Republic um, and had had a seamless transition there, too. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that, that's been um, we've worked with so many great people. Benny Tarantini has been the publicist for a long time. He, he's Adele's a publicist. Oh, wow. Oh. Wow. Um, okay. Yeah, we've had, had a lot of great team team members within the labels. Uh, yeah. I will say that, you know, like the major labels, it's uh, it's a lot of musical chairs that happens. So if you, yeah. if you stay at a label a long time, there'll be a lot of turnover. Yeah, uh, I've noticed that too. How that was 20 years ago, but I can say, you know, last 15 years, that's how it was. Feels like a constant. Um it's interesting you talking about all these peripheral members of the AVET team or wanting to join the team or whatever. Another thing that I was kind of alluding to earlier when I was watching the doc is that anyone, if any one person in this melting pot of personalities is a dick or <laughs> unpleasant to work with or doesn't have the same sort of sense of family or altruism as the rest, they're yeah. going to get snuffed out. They, yeah. you know, it, you keep, you always hear about what a, that it's just like piranhas in the music industry and everyone's just out to get each other. And it's so, you know, cutthroat and everything. You guys are like the opposite of that. And if anyone's going to bring that kind of vibe into the circle, they can leave because that's not what we're about. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. 
we um that's well said i mean yeah that's very well yeah yeah just no one better be a dick if you're going to enter our orbit you're not allowed if you're going to be a jackass you just need (laughs) a hard worker because i can put up sometimes with jackass if they bust bust their ass right but if they don't that's yeah no i love to uh joe the cello player in there because and he was like look i know i'm only on a few songs but i have to earn my keep so i just try to work really hard at making everybody breakfast or whatever you need running to the store because i have to earn my keep to be a part of this team full time even though i'm only on a few tracks and every record i love that mentality that was so fun yeah okay what are the biggest challenges to being a manager now is it negotiating on pricing is it i'm imagining you get invited to a lot of things no one wants to do and you have to say no what is it oh i don't know i mean probably the biggest challenge is is, you know still for every yes i get in this business there's probably 40 to 50 no's yeah um so you have to build up a thick skin of of you know no i'm i'm it I'm going to sort of use that to prove to you that that we can and we should have. I guess keep you know one thing. This and this this is probably I guess like any business. But you know when I first started this, is started in this. It was MySpace. Hmm. Then it went to um, Facebook, Twitter a little bit. Then Instagram. Um, now we're on to TikTok. <laughs> Uh, are you personally the person that has to learn how to do all those things? Cause that's another thing where I'm like, I don't, I don't want to learn all that. Well, I don't want to learn all of that. So <laughs> I have a great group of folks that work Good. with me who do know all of that. And, and, uh, and I'm the oldest. Yes. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, that that's, but I guess it's a necessary evil. I mean, it is how people are finding out about bands and sure. That's what still happens. Think, still think word of mouth is still like if you discover it on a certain platform, you're going to dig it. But if mm-hmm. somebody tells you, yeah. I think you stand a better chance or we do of getting that, that person to person. I just think this, a lot of this stuff is what's hip now and fly by night. You learn mm-hmm. also, but if somebody personally tells you about something, mm-hmm. That's, I still value that a lot. I think we're okay. definitely underrated when it comes to forms of finding out about things. Absolutely. It is. Um, okay. I got to ask one last business-related question. I think people uh, – thank you, by the way, Dolph, for being so forthcoming. As you know, we try to t- touch on the business side of these things. Yes. How is your – if you don't mind me asking, how is your – relationship structured are you 10 percent? if there's a polite way of explaining how this works so managers typically make 15 percent. okay booking agents make 10 percent. okay that is the standard across the board i mean just think colonel parker was making 50 percent. that's crazy plus with his background over in europe you know, he really couldn't go back to Europe. So Elvis never toured Europe. Nope. 
So I have a lot of young people that will come to me and they'll say, well, I talked to such and such booking agent and they're going to do my shows for 20%. And I'm already like, wait a minute, wait a minute, 10%. That's Mm -hmm. the same. Any good booking agent is going to tell you 10%. Um, Managers is 15%. Okay. So that's. um, And that's for any uh, profit coming in. Yes. Okay. Okay. Record contracts, live shows, stinks yeah, in I mean, movies or whatever, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and then some of that stuff can is negotiated, of course. Sure. And, uh, you know, if, if a certain band would come to me that's a massive band and they would say, well, we want to hire you, but we've got to give you a high haircut. Uh-huh. I would say start cutting. Right. Okay. You know, now, so... Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so let's say the band, uh, any band, I'm guessing would need to have a good lawyer. Is that so? After you say the ten and the fifteen, there's seventy five left over for the band. Does the, anything going to like a retainer of a lawyer come out of that seventy five? Uh, well, a lot of okay, or is it so by case by case basis. We've got business accountants or business managers mm-hmm. that some take a percentage, some take. Uh, they charge a fee, a monthly to yearly fee. Um, and then you have lawyers. Some lawyers work on a retainer type deal. Some book by the hour. Okay. So both business management and lawyers, that's a little bit more of a negotiable kind of situation. And all of us, managers, booking agents, business accountants, and lawyers, have to do a lot of work at the start for a baby band, you know, a band that's just starting for free. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because we're just trying to get the ball rolling. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so there's that, uh, you know, okay. that has to be factored in. But um, yeah, it starts to add up quick. Uh, okay. So you need to surround yourself with good, good people. Absolutely. Um, what about from the label side? Do you still run Ramser Records? Yeah, so we still put records out, but it's it's more of a labor of love type thing, and it never was like it's one of those things. If my bands don't have a label, mm-hmm. you know, I tell people that my my record label, I'm like an old Volkswagen Beetle bug around town. I'm pretty good. Yeah, on the open highway, right. maybe not that great, but I mean we can. We do a good job, and and uh, we just don't have what what a lot of majors and big indies have. You know, they've got some funds that they can they can keep putting the fuel on the fire. Yeah, they do. Okay. Last yeah. question. I'm imagining your phone is blowing up twenty four seven. I'm kind of amazed that we had an almost uninterrupted hour to chit chat here. Yeah. Is that true? Weekends and evenings. Uh, it's it's. I have come to, it's just a part of my life. Yeah. Yeah. My family realizes also that it's part of my life. Put, put uh, food, puts food on the table. It puts food on the table, but in a lot of ways, look, I, this is not a job. No. I mean, it's a labor of love and I'm not working in a cotton mill. I mean, the cotton mills are all gone now, but, uh, you know, when you grow up around here, a lot of times you're you sort of uh that's your destiny is to work in a cotton mill and um so i'm just not i'm thankful that uh i do something that i love because i know there's so many people that don't and look 
you could do what I do, no doubt about it. I mean, I'm not. You, you told me that when we met, and I just think I don't. I'm I'm too scared. Well, you know? one thing you got going for you is I believe you can get seeing dealing with all these label heads and all the people that work at labels. Really, I can go toe to toe with anybody on music. Uh huh. And if you can get. Most of these p- people working at record labels, they love music. Yeah. And you could get them on a conversation about such and such album that came out in 1973. Right. And, and that's really what it's all about at the end of the day is the love of music. And, yeah. um, you know, I'm just a fan, first and foremost. And I tell people this all the time. I am just making, I'm still 16 years old, making a mixtape for people. (laughs) I love that. I love it. That's it. I have fun getting people turned on to music. And I tell you to see like Sierra Farrell, the Avett brothers, Amethyst Kia, these acts to see somebody new, discover them when when you're at a show and somebody's seeing them for the first time. That's a special thing. Yeah, it is. And, you know, hit songs to me, John, are like the Avits have so many now that are, um, you know, we're, we'll have somebody write in and it will be, you know, we played this song at my dad's funeral. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're celebrating yeah. our 10th anniversary and we danced to Swept Away and we named our kid Avit. And, mm. you know, I mean, wow. I get thousands of emails. Um, I bet you do. You're like that. I mean, yeah. that's a hit song. Yeah. Not all this stuff on the charts and more power to, to those things, but sure. To me now where I'm, I'm 54 years old. Those are hits. Yeah. You guys found a different lane and have managed to have be equally, if not more successful on your lane and let the pop chart lane or whatever, you know, the American idol lane or whatever happen over there. Yeah, you need to take that road. That's right. And more power to those people that sure. do have to take that road. Luckily we uh, were not, uh, and all the bands I've worked on, we're staying on this path of one fan at a time and went over, went in over those fans for life. Yeah. And treat That's them well. because without the fans, uh, you know, you're not doing this without, music fans yeah i'm not doing this without music fans no no way no way so uh but yeah i'm listen i've probably listened now how many episodes have you done now 615 or something like 350 well of the major tuesday ones yeah we're the when you it's like 350 or something 355 and when you factor in the bonus stuff it gets even higher. yeah but i listen to those bonus ones too and um i tell you what i mean i'm so thankful you've been able to to track down some of these folks i mean i've often wondered like you know some of the one hit wonder new wave I, I find that stuff fascinating me too i remember you was it the Monroe's did you yes. text me a while ago? Say you should get one of the Monroe's on there. And I was like, guess what? We covered that already. <laughs> yeah. I remember hearing, uh, John good. I mean, um, uh, Mark Goodman talk about, yes. uh, he really thought that they should have really, uh, been a hit. If yeah. They been a video. Yeah. I mean, I'm fascinated by all of that. I mean, 
I love post-punk music. I mean, I'm a Bunnyman. The first four Bunnyman records are way up there for me. Yeah. Uh, Same. Uh, R.E.M. I can't tell your listeners how big of an impact R.E.M. You know, when you're from the South, you know, you don't have a... Sadly, we've got a checkered past, to say the least. Mm-hmm. And R.E.M. always made me proud to be from the South. Good. Ooh, they, that's good. They never dumbed down the South and did anything that made us look foolish. No. No. You know, and, uh, I was able to tell Mike Mills that, and I've always wanted to meet the other fellas to tell them. And I've gotten to know Mitch Easter and Don Dixon, who produced those. You know, Mitch did the first three. Don helped him out on the third one. And uh-huh. just just to meet Mitch and Don uh, and talk to them about R.E.M. is a thrill for me. I bet. Yeah, so again, I guess you can tell I'm still just a music fan. Totally. Well, and that's, I think, at the core of why we bonded initially. And then, um, thank you for chatting. I mean, I've always wondered what it was like being a band's manager. And I'm sure I asked some dumb, maybe two, two... old questions but thank you for doing it in stride because i no one's ever been willing to chat with me about this kind of thing so thank you yeah you're welcome all right there you have it dolph ramser isn't he a good dude i i mean i just he and he and i've done it we we text or we email and stuff just bands that we love hey do you remember these guys were you into these guys i love stuff like that and his knowledge and music love is so broad and diverse I really get off on people like that. Anyway, I thought you would hope, I thought you would learn a few things about what it takes to be a band manager in this day and age. It sounds like it's a lot. It also sounds doable, but I'm so risk averse that he's told me before that he thinks I should look into it, but I just think I, I'm too scared. I, I don't, you got lucky, Dolph. You, you backed the right horse. I don't know that I would back the right horse. I don't even know how to do that. Anyway, it's a lot. Okay, uh, I wanted to close it out with one of their big hits, Laundry Room. And the reason I'm doing this is because if you go back to listening to our last recap episode, I tell the story about Dolph ushering me and Farah, my wife, and my good friend Matt and his daughter Gabby uh, backstage at Red Rocks. We're standing on the side of the stage, and Dolph tells us, pull your cameras out, because in about two minutes, this whole mountain is going to go crazy. And he was right, and it did during this song. And so I have, I filmed it, I have it on my camera, and I will never lose that. It was one of the most interesting experiences of my life. But anyway, that's why I want to make sure I closed out with Laundry Room. Uh, And go watch the Judd Apatow documentary. It's really, really interesting. You fall in love with these people. They're just so family-focused. I love it. Now, next week, I will be honest, I don't know what exactly what I'm going to be able to put out next week. Um, I've got so many... (laughs) interviews in the can and some of the ones that i've been holding on to the longest are not necessarily time sensitive so do i continue to bump them for the time sensitive ones or do i mix and match or do i put them together in twofers i'm not exactly sure but whatever it is something will be out next week it'll be great uh also yan the man makavich my right hand man thank you buddy he's got some stuff going on in his life Hopefully that promo mode is going to come out this week. If not, know that Yan is trying. He's super busy with a lot of other things. Uh, you guys know you can find our Facebook page. You can like us on there. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. Okay? 
Thanks, everybody. Well, and uh, I mentioned before, I should have copies of the new Traveler's Soul. Uh, I don't know if they're CDs or albums yet from Blues Traveler, but when I get them, I will post them to the Patreon page and give them away to whoever. Okay? Thank you, everybody. We love you. Break this time.